Hey folks, you are listening to Danny's Diary, a podcast powered by Singing News Magazine. My name is Danny Jones. My guest today is a very familiar face in the world of Southern Gospel music. I'm referring to Randy Bird. Randy, we are glad that you have stopped by today. What a joy. A man of many, many words, so I can tell, Troy. Our engineer today, Troy Peach, music by Eli Fortner. And as we said, this is powered by Singing News Magazine. If you don't have Singing News Magazine on the way to your mailbox every month, you need to do so. You can subscribe by calling 800-527-5226 or going to singingnews.com. Let's start off with Randy Bird, the most simple question that we can ask today. Your current role is bass vocalist of the Mark Trammell Quartet. How long have you been there? May will be six years. Six years already? Yeah, it's hard to believe. My goodness. And before that, just to bring everybody up to speed, you spent some time with the Blackwood Brothers. I did. I was there eight years. And before that? I was a baby. No. Wow. (laughs) No, before that, I actually lived in Des Moines, Iowa, and uh, sang with a local quartet up there called uh, quartet called Majesty, and worked at Principal Financial. Okay, so what brought uh, you to the gospel music table? What fostered that interest? Well, for as far back as I can remember, I loved music. My mother was a always had records going, but not of gospel music. Back my earliest memories, I was five years old. She had a old stereo that folded up like a suitcase mm-hmm. and she had uh, Sonny James old country artist uh, Snoopy and the Red Baron so I was always listening to some kind of music but at 12 years old uh, our Sunday school teacher at, at my dad's church we had a big bus ministry every Saturday we'd go visiting well he always had eight tracks in his car of gospel music and so I fell in love with those and I would borrow them and wear them out along with his LPs. And at 12 years old, he took me to my first singing in Little Rock, Arkansas. And on the program that night were several groups, but I distinctly remember the Kingsman, three chords in a cloud of dust, just wearing it out. And I looked at my buddy who was with me, and I said, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. And then these two old men and three young guys in plaid suits walked out. And I looked at my buddy and said, this is going to be awful. But that piano player ran that arpeggio, and George started singing, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, and I was hooked, Cathedral Quartet. And also another note, I found out six years ago that a young Mark Trammell was in that same building that same night. We never knew each other. And yet here you are today on the same bus, have been for the past six years, and uh, small world. I mean, uh, in fact, uh, Mark references this uh, from the stage a lot. You literally grew up just a few miles from each other, uh, from each other, never knowing each other. Right. And now here you are. Does that ever <clears throat> do you, Do you ever stop and think, okay, what if I had known him back then? What would have transpired? Or do you just you know it is what it is, and we just move on? Where Where Where, where do you land on that? That's a great question. I've I've looked at it from a couple of different ways, and it still blows my mind on how closely we were connected yet never being connected. Uh, in our church, we had a, a youth choir, or our youth group made up the bulk of the church, and we had about 45 kids ranging from 12 years old to 17. And in that group was a family that had been at my dad's first church in Oklahoma, 
and followed us when we moved from Oklahoma to Arkansas. They followed us because they loved my dad. Their oldest son, who was two years older than me, is to this day the most gifted vocalist I've ever heard. He unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but I'll never forget this. It's like it happened yesterday. We all hauled hay together. I, I lived at their house every chance I got. They lived in the country on a farm. And he came to church on a Wednesday night, just blistered from being in the hayfield all day. And he was scheduled to sing. And he opened it that night by saying, I apologize for my appearance. My throat is full of hay. It's scratchy, but I'd like to sing a new song tonight that I just heard and just learned it. And he sang the song, and for the life of me, I'm trying to remember the exact title of it, but I found out years later that Mark Trammell had written that song when he was 15 years old. It's just mind-blowing. So to, to get back to your question, I, I've looked back on it and thought, how cool would it have been to know? Because obviously I was a huge Mark fan when he went with the cathedrals. That was my favorite group. Never dawned on me that one day I'd even get to meet him, much less work with him. And, and we'll cover more of that mm-hmm. maybe later. I'll share some more of that. But uh, I've sat on the bus many a night wondering what it would have been like to have known him all this time. But God never makes mistakes, so I'll just trust no, in that. That's so. right. He's he hasn't he has the perfect track record of all track records. You know, uh, a lot of our listeners um, have had family who have been part of the military, but some of them are currently in the military. You've spent a little time in the military yourself, haven't you? I did. At twenty five years old, I was married, had three kids, working in a factory, and my dad had been a marine when prior to becoming a, a preacher and. I had always wanted to do that, but I got married at 18, and I realized one day that life was kind of quickly passing by, and if I was ever going to do anything remotely like that, I needed to do it. So I tried to join the Marines, but at that time, there was no opening for any job classification that I was looking for. So I ended up joining the Air National Guard. I was a deacon at our church, and some of the men in the church were already in, and so they encouraged me. And so I joined and went to basic and tech school. And shortly after getting back from that, Desert Storm happened. And so we got activated and sent to California. So I served during Desert Storm and uh, ended up serving six years total. Some of the most uh, uh, memorable times of your life, both good and bad, but uh you know, uh, my dad served in the Army, and, and everybody who's been there, practically everyone that I know that's served in any of those branches said, you know what, I'm glad I did it. Yeah, I, it was. I'll be honest with you. At that time, I was in the Air National Guard. I was working in a factory, and I had a local quartet that I had started out of our church. And the group had been together about two years, and it really took off for that region. We were working 45 weekends a year, plus our regular job, plus the guard, and something had to give. And I made the choice of getting out of the guard, and there's hardly a week goes by that I don't regret that. Yeah. But at the same time, had you not done that, we may not be having this interview today. That's exactly right. And at the end of the day, the music was much more important to me. Did you start out to be a bass singer? No, I, I get asked that a lot. And I don't currently classify myself as a bass. I, I am a baritone that 
occasionally will squeak out a low note. But uh, no, when I was young in that youth choir that I mentioned, I was the high tenor. I, I was the one screaming the high notes. And I think the thing that frustrated me most is dad being a, the pastor, the phone rang off the wall. And I would usually answer it, and almost invariably they would say, thank you, ma'am. Oh, so real confidence builder. <laughs> right. But when I went to see the cathedrals that night, the, the, the Sunday school teacher took me. I was 12 years old. And I literally came home that night and looked at my mom and said, I'm going to be a bass singer. So, and what was her response? And she just laughed and said, sure you are. <laughs> okay. So when, when did you realize, though, that uh, you, you could do that? I mean, when, when you started your, your, your regional, when you started singing on a regional basis, were you already in that register? Or? No, we, we had a Christian school at our church, and uh, we had hired a, a family from California to come. And the second year of the school, he came and basically shaped it and turned it into a model school for the state. And he had a huge background. I don't know if you're familiar with Accelerated Christian Education. Mm-hmm. That was his background. And he had spent quite a few years in their uh, state conventions, uh, heading up the music uh, competition, judging, things like that. So when he came, that was about the time my voice had started to change. And so he had started a little church quartet we'd sing on Sunday mornings, and he sang the bass part. And at that time, I was, he had me sing an alto. And he started working with me to hear the bass part. And so as my voice began to change, I just kind of drifted to that. But really what drove the love for it was George. Mm -hmm. Uh, I borrowed those eight tracks and those records and had no formal training other than what little that guy gave me. But uh, every day I was in my room. I had a big stereo I'd got for Christmas at a young age. I wore those records out, and I did my best to be George every day. Did you have a favorite song during that time? I did. Uh, I always break it down in categories. Uh, I had a favorite fast song, favorite medium song, favorite slow song, things like that. But I always loved hearing George sing Going Home, mm-hmm. the old Bill Gaither song. That was probably my, my favorite. Yeah. And every now and then you've been known to sing that song along the way. I, you know, you, when you start looking at the resume of, of Randy Bird, there, there's a couple things that jump out. You've had the opportunity to sing with one of the most recognizable names of all in gospel music, i.e. the Blackwood Brothers. You also had the opportunity to sing with a a gentleman who was part of one of the biggest quartet dynasties of the world, Mike Lefevre from the Gold City days. Here you are singing with Mark Trammell, who's been a part of cathedrals, Gold City, and other groups. You, You have been in some incredible places and been with some people who have really shaped the entire shape of this industry. I hate to use the word twice, but that's the truth. You know, these guys were part of the ones who made this industry what it is today. Mm -hmm. How did you, how did you land on the Blackwood brothers bus? Well, I mentioned I'd sang with majesty quartet Mm -hmm. and uh, for almost six years, I, I sang with them, but I didn't own the group, but I did MC. I did all the MC work. And we traveled in about a seven-state region, and for a regional group, we were pretty successful. And during that time, I got invited personally to come back and do revivals, uh, church fill-in work, things like that. 
And I can't tell you who it is because I don't know. All I can tell you is that uh, the Blackwoods were in that area singing and announced that Ken Turner was retiring. Okay. And if anyone knew of a bass singer, let them know. Well, somebody, don't know who, somebody from my connections gave them my information. And so they emailed me. I thought it was a joke. I thought I literally thought it was one of my buddies messing with me because they knew how bad I wanted to do this full time, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't. I didn't answer the email at first because I didn't know the name. I didn't recognize the. It was from uh, Mark Blackwood, but he didn't use a something easily right, identifiable. Right. So I thought it was somebody something that someone had made up. Mm-hmm. So then the next week I get another one and asking me to call. And so I called, and it turned out they were going to be in the same area the next weekend and wanted to know if I would come audition. But I was already scheduled to sing in Illinois that Saturday that they were going to be there, but I found out they were two hours away Friday night. So I told my wife, you know, I've, I've always wondered if I could have made it, and I'm at a point in my life where I'd at least give it a try. I'm going to go and just see what happens. And two weeks later, I moved to Tennessee. And little did you know, well, you knew, but little did you know that the Blackwood Brothers at that time were singing 400 dates a year. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It seemed like that at some times. It, it, it did at times, but we, we actually were, uh, I was there eight years, but I would say at least six of those years, we were different than most full-time groups. We Most full-time groups leave Wednesday night, come home Sunday night, early Monday morning. The Blackwoods, we would typically go out seven to ten days and then be off for a couple of weeks and then go out for another five to seven. Mm-hmm. So we did about the same number of dates. We just bunched them together. Right. And we did that. I thought that was normal because that was my first introduction, really. Right. And then after your tenure there, uh, people saw you next with the Lefebvre Quartet. You spent some time there. And uh, after after your tenure there, Mark Trammell called. And that's been a... It's been a very successful pairing, you know. Mark, as as you and I have joked, and a lot of us, Mark's friends have, have joked, Mark has wanted to be an old man for a long time, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that was something that uh, you know. You think about the cathedrals, and, and and Mark's never tried to intentionally do this, but one thing that made the cathedrals successful was the interaction between Glenn and George, and their ages were similar. Well, until you came along, Mark did not have a similar age bracket on the platform with him. Now, all of a sudden, he's got things that you can play off of with each other, and it's connected with the audience, and it's, it's just made the entire package better. So from your perspective, what's it like traveling with Mark Trammell? Well, I tell people every chance I get that on any given day, it's either a daycare center or a nursing home on that bus. Great line. We will use that one later. All right, you got you. You can't stop the story there. You got to keep going. Well, I'll, and I follow it up with this: that by the time I get the youngins pajamas put on and make sure Mark takes all his pills, I'm wore out. So I need your <laughs> prayer. <laughs> you know, it, it. What do you do when you are you're standing next to someone whose history in gospel music is so rich? Do you ever look over there 
and momentarily forget, wait a minute, I'm standing next to someone who's who's done it all. There's nothing I can do that he hasn't seen. What 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 goes through your mind in times like that? I've been here six years, and it's still intimidating at best. Um, on any given night, almost every week, there will be a moment, and it's different. It's a different moment every time, but there will always be a moment where I almost just forget to sing because there's a million things running through my mind. And even though I've been here six years and he makes me feel like family, it never leaves my mind. He sang next, next to George. He sang next to Ray Dean. He sang next to Tim Riley. That doesn't go unnoticed in my mind. Mm-hmm. So the thing that makes it easy to deal with is that Mark is the most unassuming guy ever. He's very aware of what he's done and where he's been, but he never acts like it. Right. He doesn't bring it up. No. You, you have to you, uh, you have to literally bring it out of him. I would say on most days, he's still that 20-year-old kid that was riding the cathedral's bus. That's how he approaches. Mm-hmm. He's, he's always learning about yeah, it. Still excited. And you're you're still excited about it too. I mean, I, I know you you make a joke about it, and you have to endure all the all the shenanigans of uh, Stephen and Nick and all that. But right. that, but that's just part of it. I wouldn't trade it. No. If if so, in in that vein, if 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 you weren't singing, what would you be doing? Would you you think you'd be uh, still in the military, or do you think you'd be in the finance world, or what? what just what do you think? Well, gut reaction. If I ended today, if I never sang another note, I would move back to Oklahoma and be close to my parents. They're in their 80s. And I've always wanted to have a ranch with at least two horses. That would be my goal. Well, nothing wrong with that. You're listening to Danny's Diary, the podcast powered by Singing News Magazine. And as we mentioned earlier, if you're not receiving Singing News Magazine, you need to because after 51 years, it's still one of the best ways to keep up with everything that's going on in the world of Southern gospel music, whether it's the Mark Trammell Quartet, Ernie Haas Signature Sound, Greater Vision, or the Collingsworth family. You'll find them all in an issue of Singing News Magazine. To subscribe, 800 or visit singingnews.com. Our guest today, Randy Bird of the Mark Trammell Quartet. Now, Randy, we're going to throw a few names at you right now, and I just want your first reaction. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Nick Trammell. The most underrated singer in our business, and George once said of his father, the best quartet man that he had ever seen. Well, I will say that of Nick. Well, that's a pretty high endorsement right there. That, that's that's really good. Okay, um, let's go back a few years. Let's go way back a little bit. Uh, Glenn Payne. Brilliant. Knowing what I know about him now as opposed to what I knew about him as a kid listening to him on records, I've always considered him to be a brilliant vocalist. Comes to find out he was not gifted in the area of rhythm. From what I understand, he struggled to sing with rhythm when they would record, but you would never know it when he sang live. Right. That's one of those little little tidbits of information not many people know, but uh, uh, when it was all said and done, the package worked well. It did. What about Dottie Rambo? 
one of my favorite sing, uh, writers and singers. I, I had the privilege of working with her at uh, TBN Studios maybe two weeks before she passed. And I always loved her singing and her writing, but I'll never forget that night. She was just a frail little old lady, but you could sense the anointing on her just talking with her. Your wife, Tracy, is a, a talented singer in her own right. And you were sharing with Troy and myself earlier a little a little story that uh, uh, has helped keep you a humble man. <laughs> and uh, I think this would be a perfect opportunity uh, for you to share with our listeners uh, that story. Go ahead. No, nobody's going to hear this. It's it's just it'll just be around forever. Go ahead. We'll make sure it, Tracy gets a copy yes, of this. This will this will be played at my funeral. I'm quite sure, but. Uh, many years ago, I recorded a solo album, and in fairness to me, before we go any further, that CD was never intended to be released. It was a private recording between myself and the piano player on it, as J.C. Clark played for the Weatherfords back in the 60s, uh, dear friend. And we recorded it one night at his house, did seven songs at 2 o'clock in the morning, he handed me a songbook, said, you sing them, I'll play them. And we did it just for us. And at the end of the night, when we played it back, I asked him if I could release it because it was just something special. And I titled it, What You Hear Is What You Get. Didn't edit one thing. You can hear the dog bark. You hear the piano bench creak. Okay, that's the story on that CD. When I traveled with the Blackwood Brothers, we sold that CD on the table, and it was successful. It had a lot of reorders, according to the office, and that was kind of mind-blowing to me. So years later, when Tracy recorded her hymn album for her group, she needed more product to sell. So I suggested that she take my solo CD and package it together, do the two-for-20 thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, come to find out, nine out of ten times, people will pay $15 for hers instead of 20 to add mine. So, yes, I stay quite humble. Well, you know, we all need that in our life, that little humbling factor. <laughs> it keeps, keeps us uh, grounded, if you will. You know, your, your professional gospel music history is a resume full of quartets. Do you ever think you could sing with a, in a mixed group, or is this quartet world where you want to stay? Absolutely, it's where I want to stay. Um, but my the very first group that I started was a mixed quartet known as Eastern Sky out of uh, Eastside Baptist Church in St. Joe, Missouri. We traveled for four years and uh, made a couple recordings and had great times. We Our, our go-to uh, cover group was the Neelands. We did our best to sound like the Neelands, and we didn't pull it off very successful, but for a local group, we did pretty good. When uh, our engineer Troy Peach learned that Randy Bird was coming in uh, uh, as as one of our guests, he he said, "Now that gentleman has been around long enough, and with just the right groups, to have some great road stories." So, in the back of your mind, I want you to be thinking of a great road story that you can share as we as we go down the road. And but before we get to that, I want to ask you this question: If you were going to assemble what you felt was the perfect quartet. Uh, in other words, do the exact same thing that Hovey Lister did way back when he put together the Statesman. What would be the lineup that you would put together? 
Very, it's already existed and is on recording. I can tell you without hesitation. George Yance, Glenn Payne, Danny Funderburg, Mark Trammell, and Gerald Wolf. That was the quickest response we've ever had to that question. All right, so now we're going to go to your road story question. There's got to be something. And all those miles on a bus with the Blackwoods or Mark or Lefebvre Quartet, any of those, it's fair game. Tell me, give me your best road story. Well, the key word to your question was that we could share. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, there, there's so many, it would be hard to pinpoint it. For me personally, one of my favorites is I used to do the sales pitch for the Blackwood Brothers. We were in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, at Piedmont, uh, I believe it was the Seventh-day Adventist Church on a Saturday night, and there was about 1,200 people there. And it was the week after the NCAA football championship. And I'm from Oklahoma originally, who happens to be one of Nebraska's biggest rivals, Mm -hmm. especially back in the 70s. So I started the the sales pitch by welcoming the crowd and thanking them for allowing us to be there and congratulating them on playing in the national football championship the week prior, although I knew they hadn't. So of course the crowds kind of booed and Mm -hmm. I acted like I was not aware of that. And so then after they all were laughing and booing and giving me trouble, I said, I guess this is probably not a good time to tell you that I'm from Oklahoma. So, of course, it was bedlam at that point. Right. So we get through it, and they're wearing me out. And I go to exit the stage, and I had new leather shoes on, and I face-planted on the, on the floor right off the stage, face down. And so being true to myself, I crawled mm. all the way down the center aisle <laughs> to a standing ovation as I crawled all the way out of the auditorium. Wow. So how many product pitches have you made since then? <laughs> not many. Not many. Not many. <laughs> no, actually, we sold good that night. So. Oh, was that the sympathy sale it at that the, point? Yes, yes. Okay, whatever it takes sometimes. <laughs> you know, uh, you've been in gospel music long enough to, to see uh, a lot of fads come and go. Mm-hmm. You, you've seen uh, vocal techniques. You've seen this, that, and the other. Uh, to the young people that are coming into Southern gospel music who have an interest in in doing this as you know their profession down the road, what what's uh, what what advice would you would you outlay to them? Make the message of the song your top ten priorities, not just the message by itself, but in your overall approach and your delivery, because that will carry you further than any new suit, any new hairstyle, any new shoe, any new marketing scheme. Because our fans, although they may not be knowledgeable as far as the technicality of musical chords and progressions and things like that, they are very aware of sincerity. And they know instantly if you're a used car salesman or if you're the real deal, or at least they will have a perception of that. Mm-hmm. And I, I won't name any names, but there are certain groups in our industry that will never win a singing contest musically. 
but you never want to have to follow them because of the anointing that they have. Mm -hmm. And the common denominator that all of those people have is the sincerity from their heart when they sing that message. You know, sincerity is is such that can never be underestimated uh, because, as you said, the audiences are extremely uh, perceptive. And the old saying, first impression is a lasting impression, that is definitely true in gospel music. Without you know, a doubt. Un- unfortunately, some groups, regardless of their intent, some artists never have that opportunity. It, you know, they, they don't get a second chance, if you will. And in, in some regards, that's a shame because some nights things just don't work. We all know that. Mm-hmm. So in that same vein, what's what's gospel music need right now to carry itself into the next few years? Well, I think Gaither, excuse me, Bill Gaither, kind of proved it without, I don't think it was his intention, but he reintroduced characters via the video series, Mm -hmm. people who had long since kind of faded away because there was no longer radio stations in every city, and so they they were no longer household names. But by dumb luck or accident, or maybe it was planned, I don't know, but he reintroduced the Howard and Vestals and the Jake Hess and the JDs uh, George and them were still pretty much peaking at that point, so he didn't. I never say he reintroduced them, but by doing that, he also brought along a young man that became a household name and still is today by the name of Mark Lowry. Mm-hmm. We talk about this on our bus. I can go back through history and name quote unquote big stars, and every one of them have something in common, and that is they all were part of a group that had a group owner or manager that was secure enough in themselves to allow them to become who they were. And I see a lot of group managers now that are so focused on being in control, it's almost like they squelch some of that ability in their personnel. And I don't mean, I'm not saying that critical, it's just an observation, but I would... George and Glenn, we've mentioned them a lot, but for years I thought they were the most beloved people because of their singing. But the older I get, I realize it was more because of their personality. They were characters that people connected with. Mm -hmm. And the groups that are at the top of our industry right now all have at least one of those. So I, I hope that some of those can develop. Who do you see as the potential next characters? Well, I can't stand his singing, but Pat Barker, I think, is is one of them. And by and I'm teasing on that. Well, I, uh, uh, I was I was about to tell you, you know, Pat Barker was in here earlier, and uh, if 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 you folks follow Facebook, you know that Pat. Uh, well, he's the thorn in the side of everyone. I, everyone. Think, I think that's face. Yes. And of course, you had uh, the misfortune, if you will, of following Pat Barker. And uh, so naturally, Pat did everything he could possibly do to set you up properly. Yes. And uh, but that and by and in and in Pat's eyes, that's doing everything possible to antagonize you. Yes. But uh, I believe you're right. Pat does have that potential to be a character. Who else? Josh Singletary jumps out. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is so brilliant musically. 
but people don't see that side of it. That gets overlooked because he's such a character on stage, mm-hmm. and which is just more to his talent. It, Always, I'm envious of people like that. I, I I can't walk and chew bubble gum, and this guy's got more talent in 15 different areas than I'll ever have. So, uh, Pat and, and Josh stick out to me. Uh, Clayton Inman, again, is one of those unsung heroes. He doesn't get recognized for a lot of things, but people love to watch him on stage. Yes, they they're drawn to him. Right. He's he in a in a roundabout kind of way. He's. He's a little bit like Glenn Payne was, you know. He's he's solid at what he does and everything. And the best way you appreciate his abilities, if for some reason he's not in that for mm-hmm. right at the moment, you know instantly something's gone. And that was the same way with 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 Glenn. Um, and and then you know, uh, I think you and I have talked about this along the way. We're this industry is in a certain unusual place. It's never been before. We're out of legends, and we're having we're having to wait until those legends arrive at the legendary status. We've never really experienced that before, and sometimes those people that set the bar so high, you know, that gave everyone something to shoot for. Well, right now we're somewhat kind of waiting for that bar to arise. Now, you know, you, you can make a case that Mark Trammell's headed in that direction. You can make the case of, of, of a few others. But we're we're almost there, but not quite. And uh, what do you think it will take? Who, who, uh, what do you think it will take for someone to finally get to that point? Is it just a matter of going around the circuit a few more years and, and picking up a few more fans hearing there or, or, or what? Well, I can tell you what my opinion is on that as far as I think the groundwork has already been laid within the last three years. In my opinion, the next true legend that will be recognized as such is Gerald Wolf. Okay. And not necessarily just because of his singing. Everyone knows in his early days, he could tote the mail. I mean, he could evermore sing. And they became the most awarded trio in history. We know that. And I watched him the last few years as he started developing the vocal issues. He had more than earned his right with the fans. He could have continued at the level he was at for the rest of his career, and people would have have accepted that and never blinked. Mm -hmm. But he did not accept that. He had set a standard on where he wanted their vocal abilities to be, and he humbled himself. This is just my take on it. Sure, He may not agree with it, but he can apologize to me in heaven for being wrong. But I watched him make a decision that I'm going to step back vocally and I'm going to hire someone that will raise that bar back up to where I want it to be, where, where he wants it to be where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And he brought John Epley in, of course, to sing the vocal part. But I think what will end up making Gerald the legend is what made George the legend. He is Elisha to George's Elijah, if you will. In my opinion, he is the best MC on the road he connects with people in a way that I've not seen since George. 
and is one of the most humble people behind the scenes that you'll ever meet. He comes across very confident, but in all reality, he's very laid back, very humble. And people connect with that. Mm-hmm. And I think when it's all said and done, he will be ranked up there as one of the greatest ever. Well, I'm sitting next to someone right now who's also very humble, and that's Randy Bird. And we we, we are thrilled that you were our guest today. One final question before we go. Do you have anything that you would like to throw out there? <laughs> How much time we got? We got all day. <laughs> I will say this. I'm the most blessed man alive. I pinch myself every day. I look much older, but I'm only 56, so I plan on being out here a long time. But if I never sang another note, no one has been more blessed than me. You mentioned when I joined Mark, people may not get this, but I want to share it. When he called me to, to fill in, I was honored. I knew that Filling in for Pat was no big deal. There weren't big shoes to fill there, so I I wasn't intimidated by that part. (laughs) And I'm teasing. But when we – I had just got engaged in February, and he called me in late April asking me to fill in in May. And so I went out with them. Pat's last weekend I rode just to observe what they did. And – then the next week, my first week with, with him, we went to Canada. And during that weekend, he, we were walking down the hall of that convention center headed to the bus, and he asked if he could consider me for the position. And I literally laughed out loud. And I looked at him, and he, he said, I'm serious. And so I just stopped him right there, and I, I, I've always called him Doc. I don't know why, but I call him Doc. I said, Doc, I'll tell you what. I said, no one wants to be here any worse than me. But I learned the hard way that when you're where God never intended you to be, there is nothing more miserable than that. Mm -hmm. And so having learned that lesson, I would like to ask of you, allow me to pray over it. And I said, I I pray like Gideon. I'm going to get with Tracy, and we're going to lay out three fleeces that only she and I will know. And I'm going to write them down, and I'm going to put them in a sealed envelope. And I'm going to make them, to the best of my ability, things that are almost impossible. And I do that because I want to know without a shadow of a doubt that God is in it. Mm -hmm. And he said, fair enough. So... 14 days later, all three of those things had come to pass, and I'll share with you what they are. Now, the first one, people may think, I don't know if I buy that. But the very first fleece was that, first of all, that he would even offer me the job. But you have to understand from where I'm coming from, the likelihood of Mark Trammell, who sang with George and Ray Dean and Tim Riley, the likelihood of that man ever asking me to sing with him I had a better shot of getting signed by the New York Yankees. That, that was my mindset. Okay. So the first of all, that he would offer it. Second of all, I had written down a figure of how much I wanted to make. And having been out here as long as I had, I had a good feeling of what the industry standard was. 
and the figure that I wrote down was about $100 higher than what that would be. And the third thing was that he would offer health benefits and take out taxes. That may not sound like a big deal to our listeners, but for people in our industry, they know that most groups do not do that. Most groups, are they their employees are 1099, yeah. which means they just get a flat salary. They don't withhold taxes. Very few of them have a health package, so most of them are uh, – have to rely on their spouse right. for health benefits. So those three things were very highly unlikely to me. And within 14 days, he and I were having lunch in, in a food court in Mississippi. And he offered me the job. And you could have knocked me over the feather. I, I was just sitting there. And he said, now, I'd like to offer you the position, but I can pay you this much. And my eyes kind of got big. And he said, now, but before you answer, that that is the gross amount because that's I withhold taxes and provide health benefits. Mm-hmm. And, and so, at that point. And so I started laughing and crying. And he said, well, what does that mean? And I said, hang on a second. And I called Tracy. And I told her. Mm-hmm. And she screamed, you have to take this because God said so. And here you are, and six here years. I am, six years later. Our guest today, Randy Bird of the Mark Trammell Quartet. Make sure you stay tuned. The next episode of Danny's Diary is on the way.